Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Wait was recorded in Indonesia and produced on the lands of the Darawal, Wurundjeri, and Bunurong peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This episode contains references to suicide. Listen with care. So it's been 13 days. My dad is already looking like a caveman because of all the beard that he grew. He's not eating well, he's not getting up or talking or doing things much. It's just like a piece of meat fallen on the bed. I'm Mojgan Marafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait. A podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out. And brings you into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. In our final episode, we look to the future. How do you imagine the future when the present is completely unsustainable, the possibility of a new life or resettlement impossible, and you can't turn back? Yeah, this is the question I ask myself every single day for the last seven years. It's what has given me depression, anxiety, and stomach ulcer, and all the bad things in the world, and it has torn my family apart. So I'm out of the interview. It wasn't an interview, basically. She started explaining that we will never get resettled. My dad's not at home. So he just took off? He said he wants to go ban himself in front of you in That's the last thing you said. That resettlement interview at UNACR took place over a year ago now. We didn't think it was fair what happened that day, and we lodged a complaint, but we didn't get anywhere with it. You're still really upset about it now. Yeah, I can't let go of it. That day you called me in the middle of it all. What happened when you hung up from me? I called you on ACR to just let the security know that my dad is going there and ask him to stop him, calm him down so that my mom and brother can arrive there because they were closer. But instead, they contacted the police, and my dad was intercepted by police outside of the UNHCR building. My mom and brother arrived there, and they found my dad sitting in front of the UNHCR building, crying. The policeman was giving him a hug and telling him that it will be okay. What happened with your dad after he was taken home that day? A few months later, he went back to UNHCR hoping that they will tell him something different, but they told him their decision remains the same. He attempted suicide again, this time by starving himself. He starved himself for weeks. We had to forcibly take him to a psychiatric hospital because that was the only option available. So we are going to the pharmacy now to get the medication. The doctor said that because the signs of depression with medication didn't really become less, 
it's have, it hasn't been effective until my dad started crying when she asked, how are you? And after that, he didn't leave the house for the next five months. It's April 8, 2019. I woke up today so frustrated from all of the nightmares I had. I just cannot forget all of the words and the bullshit that keeps repeating and repeating in my head. Even with the strong sleeping medication that I'm taking, I still cannot sleep peacefully. And my face is falling off. I know it sounds dramatic, but that's how it feels. It's swollen everywhere. It's painful. To move my mouth is painful. My tongue is numb. My eyelids look uneven because they're so swollen. Tomorrow I have a counseling appointment at UNHCR. And I have zero willingness to go there. Because it makes me feel like absolute shit to go there from that nasty back door and this dirty, smelly street and the heats and seeing refugees there sleeping in those tents. This whole dirty political game, the governments who are just playing with humans' lives all over the world. It's just nasty. And I want to be strong, I want to continue, but it's so hard. It's already 11 at night. And I have a whole nighttime routine for my face and my mental health and for my private areas that are sick for my UTI. Just like this really old person who is in their 90s with my bag of medicine. For me and probably most other refugees, going anywhere near the UNACR building just makes us feel sick. We have to enter from the side door, you know, or we have to wait in front of it for hours. And generally, it's got a lot of negative associations. We go there hoping for solutions, hoping we get a good news. If anything, when we go there, our hopes are mostly squashed. It's not easy to make an appointment, and if I finally do get one, there's always one thing that is offered, always available, always on the table. Thinking about going home? We are here to help. We are the International Organization for Migration. We are an independent organization that provides a completely free migration service called Assisted Voluntary Return and Reintegration, or AVRR. It's the offer of a free ticket home and $2,000 on arrival. We'll be there to help every step of the way to make sure that you have a safe journey home. Each year, we provide this free migration service to lots of people just like you. The first step is easy. This online video is put out by IOM to promote the scheme. It's an animation and it shows people hopping on planes with suitcases, ready to fly home. We'll have your tickets ready and our airport staff will help you through the check-in and immigration process. 
Whenever I go to UNHCR, I always warn them not to tell me to go back to my country because I can't. But it's something that we all had to think about at some stage. It is a decision that some refugees and asylum seekers make. In 2018, over 450 people in Indonesia accepted AVRR, and last year it was more than 250. Hello. One of them was Omid. Omid. He's a Hazar asylum seeker who I met in Jakarta. He volunteered to help out at the dental care clinic that I organized. And we couldn't track you down, Omid, and then we found that you'd gone back to Afghanistan two months ago. Can you tell me why you decided to go back? Yes, miss. Uh, in Indonesia, I just uh, have a little money. When our money is finished, we don't have any other way to survive there. My wife was pregnant and I lost my son. I first met Omid when his wife was pregnant and they were sleeping in front of UNACR in Jakarta. They got in touch to ask for assistance and at the time he had a two-year-old also that had a brain injury. So I tried connecting them up with a few friends who could assist them, but then his wife went into labor very short after that. She was about seven months pregnant. So the baby was born premature and the baby died after a couple of weeks. And just we decided that Afghanistan is not secure. Afghanistan is the worst security, but we have to come back to Afghanistan was it hard to make that decision to go back? When we decide to go back to Afghanistan, we sign our debt. We are going to Afghanistan for dying, not for anything else. When you decided to go back and you went to UNHCR, what did they tell you? Didn't they tell you it might not be safe for you to go back? They asked us, are you safe in Afghanistan? I said, no, you know that no one is safe in Afghanistan, especially me. And I want to go back. They said, okay, just like this. Omid went back to Kabul. Just uh, one week or two weeks ago, and 100 meters of my home, there was a big explosion, a bump, suicide attacker, whom just shake. Too many people killed him. There was a dark smoke and everything was broken down. The bodies was on the street. The UN's assistance mission in Afghanistan puts out regular reports on civilian casualties and their most recent one was for the first half of the year. They said they're concerned about deliberate targeting of civilians and ongoing attacks on Shia Muslims, so that's Hazaras. Kabul was the second most dangerous province. Nearly 350 people were killed or injured there in just six months. As we're recording this, there was a suicide bombing on an education centre in Kabul. It was in a Shia area and it killed at least 24 people. So what's the thinking with AVR? You know, it can go two ways. It can be positive, it can be negative. So what I think is, if somebody can return safely, it would be a shame if the cost of a ticket would stop them from being able to go back home safely. 
But there's a downside to it because it's also not uncommon that refugees feel pressured to accept AVRR because their situation in Indonesia is just so bad. Omid isn't the only Hazara person that we spoke to who said UNHCR told them it was safe, even though they felt it wasn't. That's a sad story for sure. When I interviewed the UNHCR representative to Indonesia, Anne Maiman, for episode one, I also asked her about Omid's situation. Does UNHCR consider it safe for refugees and asylum seekers to return to Afghanistan at the moment? Uh, You know, there are many locations in Afghanistan that are not safe. And the situation in Afghanistan is, uh, is very, very volatile. For an Afghan to decide to return, it will often be because of very specific uh, personal reasons. They might have a family member who is sick. You're right. It was because he'd lost a baby. and The personal reasons were life was so difficult in Indonesia. Mm. I mean, I would say that that's not a good uh, motivation, unfortunately, because at least they are, they are in safety here. But it is difficult for many. I fully acknowledge that. But I would hope that no more refugees would leave Indonesia just because it's frustrated and that they reach that level of despair. I just hope there are no more and we will work towards that. Okay, so let's clear things up. UNHCR is the one who has to approve the return, but IOM coordinates the AVRR program in Indonesia. So like other IOM activities to do with refugees in Indonesia, the shelters that I visited in other episodes, for instance, this program relies on Australian government funding. Are you able to meet the needs of refugees and asylum seekers who are in the country? We are not able to meet the full range of needs of a human being. We are not a well-funded operation. But we actually have received some funding from Australia recently to help with the COVID-19 response on the health side. On mental health, we have some psychosocial counsellor, but I don't think it's adequate and I think more needs to be done. I mean, we try and work more with the communities. Uh, There are many refugee learning centres that are doing some very excellent programmes, so we have activities with them. And I think that can help, but more needs to be done. There is a lot of mental health issues, also because of frustration. That is also, you know, sometimes turning into anger, which is natural because of just sitting and waiting. In 2018, the UN General Assembly affirmed the Global Compact on Refugees. It's been a big process and it's a complex thing, but in short, it's aiming to more evenly share responsibility for refugees and asylum seekers and give more support to countries that host refugees. 85% of refugees live in developing countries. Indonesia isn't the only country in this position. And it's also meant to be about increasing refugee self-reliance, like promoting refugee-led initiatives like mine and the other ones that we talked in this series. Indonesia endorsed the agreement, but Australia didn't. And in the recent federal budget, the Australian government reduced its humanitarian intake by over a quarter. Is this consistent with a trend that we're witnessing on a broader scale? Are we seeing more refugees and asylum seekers stuck in what were traditionally transit countries for the long term and less being resettled globally? Like you've come from working in Europe and Greece. Yeah, that is a trend. That is a trend that has been in the making uh, over the years. Turkey is the biggest hosting uh, refugee country now with over 4 million refugees. But in 2016, the EU 
stroke a deal with uh, Turkey where they would be allowed to send back refugees and asylum seekers that would arrive to Greece. That's a very difficult situation for the refugees. And then you have another deal between EU and Libya, where now you have boats that are in European waters being sent back to Libya, to a terrible situation. People are kept in detention center there. They're being beaten. They're being abused. There are similarly things going on between US and Mexico. So the trend is to defer responsibilities and then giving a lot of money to those countries. Is there likely to be a shift in the rights that refugees and asylum seekers hold in Indonesia? Honestly, I think that there is no other option from the humane point of view. You have refugees now that have been here for a long time. We are talking since 2012, some of them. And they have not been doing anything other than waiting. It's terrible to think about. You know, refugees have just seen their life pass by waiting to be resettled. So I would say that there is no other choice from the humane point of view than to give refugees access to livelihood opportunities. But there's also no other option from a, from a financial point of view because it is very expensive to care for refugees. You give refugees the tools through which they can earn and care for themselves. That's a better model. What are the barriers? Why isn't that happening? Or It's happening slowly. Last year, we had the Ministry of Education that issued a decree giving access to refugee children to go to public schools. There are developments, positive developments on different fronts. But I think one of the barriers is there needs to be an acceptance among the Indonesian decision makers. They see Indonesia more as a transit country. I think there is also something that lies in those ties between Indonesia and Australia that have been built over the years based on the Australian refugee policy. That setup has then also put Indonesia into that role of not having an independent refugee policy on their own. It can be seen as Australia is just pushing the problem of the refugees to Indonesia, right? I mean, there can be that perception. But at the end of the day, you know, we are talking about human beings. They are sitting and just seeing their life pass by. The issue is also that that funding is urgently needed. I mean, the reality is the Australia funding is helping all those refugees here. So I'm not saying that everything would be better if Australia didn't fund, right? I mean, there should be more funding provided even. I mean, are sort of both of those things true in a way, that that funding is needed in Indonesia, but it's also a detrimental policy in a way. Australia is deferring its responsibility. Somehow, yeah. But I also don't think that it's fair to say that all those nearly 14,000 we have here, they should just be sent to Australia. I mean, I also think that Indonesia needs also to take its part of responsibility. I don't think the solution is that all refugees in the region should just go to Australia. Of course not. But both Australia and Indonesia could do more for refugees. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Much, much more. So Maurice would like to dance. 
my culture we like to dance in the room so i get the permission i said can i dance today then they said okay now they allow me <laughs> so they don't like to dance inside the rooms but now they try to learn yes the indonesians try to learn the somali dance with you yeah and then we teach them then we laugh <laughs> so is it kind of good relationship to my neighbor Mojgan, you just kind of refuse to accept the idea that you'll be stuck in Indonesia forever. You're in a constant battle against that. But there are people who are more resigned to accepting that fate. Because I have a small wifey and I have a small speaker, it's called Yoyo. So Yoyo, when he started, everyone become happy. <laughs> There's always four or five people here and children hanging around. My room is free for everyone. Nemo. Even saying her name makes you smile. When I'm dancing, I'm more fun. When I'm distributing food, I'm so serious. I'm like a hardworking woman. Yeah. When I'm teaching, I'm like, teacher, I don't say. Nemo has many dimensions. <laughs> Nemo is just a straight-up inspiration to me. She's full of perseverance, positivity, strength. She's 29 now, and she studied public health back home. You can only get to Nemo's place in South Jakarta by foot. So we walked along this narrow stone alleyway, past neighbours who are deep frying bananas to sell on the street, and I heard them yelling out orang hitam, or black person, at our backs as we passed. Then we arrived at Nemo's place, which shares a wall with the mosque. You're not nervous when I'm around? Yeah, you are here. So don't be, don't be This nervous. is okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let uh, me give you a tour yeah. of Nemo's room. <laughs> like you said. It's so cute. This caught my attention as we were walking in. On the front door is written, don't forget to smile. Because when the refugee come to my home, they have a problem. Then when they see this, don't forget to smile, they say, hey. Then they, after that, they start to tell me what they want. <laughs> so this is like a little community center for you and the yeah, volunteers you train. <laughs> Sometimes she tells me, I don't have a space to sleep. I come home and everybody's sleeping everywhere. So I'm like, I should stand up tonight. I stay here two years. First six months I came to Indonesia, I was homeless. I was sleeping in the masjid and area. In the mosque. Yeah, in the mosque. By the time she arrived in Indonesia, UNHCR had decided that so few people were being resettled that there was no point in assessing claims because resettlement isn't really on the cards. They say that there's no point in putting the refugees through this long, stressful process. And almost anyone who has arrived in the last couple of years has this same story. End of 2017, mm -hmm. I met Moshkan and she's the first person asking me my real life. She asked me how you eat. That's a hard question for me. Then she said, we have a food package program. And he said, okay, because and you can. You got it and shared it with all your friends. Oh, yeah, <laughs> really? And then I find this food cycle program. Nemo is now coordinating another food program, distributing donations of leftover food from fancy hotels. The number of people receiving the food is 398 refugees. 398 refugees. Yeah. So this is the freezer of community. It's not belong to me. Yeah, so you've got a massive deep freezer in this little room of yours for all the food donations. But I can't see your bed. Yeah. I, I don't have bed. I have a mattress like this. So It's okay. not really a mattress. It's a thin blanket. It's a mattress of homeless people, but this mattress of my room.
This is Indonesian flag. We respect it. Because you have the Indonesian flag um, pasted to your wall. So uh, when I see this flag, it's, it's the place that I feel at peace. Until I was born, I never know what the kind of peace. I think the bomb car killing the people, the life is like that. But when I arrived in Indonesia, I realized this is the real peace. This is real peace for you. Yeah, so the main respect that I have in Indonesia is a safety. Like, I'm safe. No one can kill me. No one can torture me. But when you are in Somalia, it's easy. Someone can hit you. Someone can kill you. But this country, you didn't think to your mind that you are tired after a few minutes later. You can walk safe wherever you want at the middle of night. That's why I respect this flag. And this is for what I'm doing daily. Distribution most of them Saturday and Sunday. When Nemo like took us through her schedule, there wasn't any spare moments in it. If I accept it Friday, I can do Sunday. So it's a bit busy. On top of the food distributions that she's doing, she's also a volunteer teacher. And she helped set up Sisterhood, which is a community center that is run for and by refugee women in Jakarta. When we talk like the women's violence is very large topic, especially gender violence for refugee women. Nemo and others often tell me about the difficulties they face as women, but these are really private conversations and no one feels comfortable talking about them openly. And the woman is a silent community. You see some women have a dangerous thing, but never tell you an HCR. If they talk, maybe their case will be priority and they can start another life. But the way of shy or the way of culture, they cannot mention it. And you see some woman, she said, why well, didn't mention this a big problem for you? She said, the interpreter was a man. My case officer was a male. So how can I say something? A few nights ago, in the middle of the night, I received a text from a refugee woman saying, where should I report it if I'm beaten up? Should I go to the police? Should I go to the hospital? Where should I go? And then I was explaining what she can do. And it was obvious that she was beaten up by her partner. I feel like you've spoken to me about this kind of thing before. It's not uncommon, right? And I guess that's why there are initiatives like Sisterhood starting up. But Sisterhood doesn't solve the problem of, you know, if you want to separate from your partner, you can stay there. It's a safe space. It's more like you can be open talking about your issues. Like, are there solutions to that as a problem? Like... Is there anything to actually support them in that? UNHCR can help place these women in Indonesian family violence shelters. These shelters are temporary and UNHCR will usually try and find longer term solutions for them. But eventually, you know, I've heard of cases where these women have to go back to their partners. There are language and culture differences between the refugees and the Indonesians and sometimes they feel discriminated against in those shelters. And they also can experience the stigma in their own community for speaking up or for leaving their husbands, so they feel pressured to return. Mojgan, if Nima had arrived in Indonesia 10 years ago, she would have had a refugee claim assessed and probably would have been resettled to Australia or the US within a couple of months. 
But that's all changed since the boat turned back. Australia reduced its resettlement from Indonesia, and then the same with the U.S. under Trump. And so, are you thinking about resettlement? Where, like, are you hoping for that? Oh, who can ask me that question? <laughs> Because I don't know where I go. I told you she doesn't like that question. <laughs> If someone asking me which country you will to go, I would go any country. Even if Indonesia gives me passport, I'm happy for that. I I need freedom and better life for this. But I don't know. I don't have any choice now, because even they don't want to listen to me. I was go to the UNHCR. Really, I proud of myself because I'm here two years. You didn't give me any interview. I have a health problem. You didn't allow me to get a health checkup. And what about my case? And she said to me, "To come to Indonesia is your choice. If you want to stay, you stay. If you don't want to stay, come back Friday, and tell I am you want to back your country. Your time is finished. Can you leave me?" And I said, "Okay, I never back again." If refugees aren't going to be resettled somewhere else, there's a really big question: Will Indonesia change the laws to give you rights, so that someone like Nemo can make a life? Anne Maiman said that's what UNHCR is focused on, and she said it is happening slowly. I know you've been trying to speak to someone from the Indonesian government. Hi, hi. Hello. <laughs> okay, let's start, Nico. Ashnal Habib is the director of human rights and humanitarian affairs in the Indonesian Ministry for Foreign Affairs. There are now almost fourteen thousand refugees and asylum seekers living in Indonesia. What does the future hold for those people? So this is the challenge for Indonesia on the humanitarian principles. We want them safe. We do it. Second one, bigger challenge is how to ensure that they can be provided with the basic needs, health. Education—that is still a problem. Are there any plans for rights or to address that situation? Nicole, look, we have to differentiate it between the fundamental rights and additional rights. Fundamental rights, for example, food, health, education, free from uh, fear. If you talk about ID, if you talk about certificate of education, that is an additional. For the additional right, as a non-party to the convention, we are asking the UNHCR to find a way how they can provide these additional rights to the refugee. Saya banyak mendapatkan pertanyaan. I get a lot of questions, for instance, about how they can get a job in Indonesia. Indonesian law does not grant refugees the right to work. If we give them work rights, we'd be violating national laws. It could lead to social conflict because the local community could think refugees are taking their employment opportunities. Other rights, like the right to marry. Certainly, being married is a human right. Tetapi married between refugee and the local people, it will create another complication. Karena It would be difficult for their children to gain legal recognition, and this would create difficulties for the children involved. Do we have to change our regulation, national law, 
to provide them rights that they can enjoy similar with Indonesian citizen. So it's more back again, back again to the, yes. uh, the legal is that, issue, is that, Nicole. Is that a question that the government is considering? Is there any plans to consider introducing laws to ensure the rights of refugees who are in Indonesia for the long term? No, what, what we do know is uh, trying to look at one by one issue. We do it a case by case and issue by issue. It was a long conversation and Pak Habib was hard to pin down, but he pretty much said no. No rights like work or marriage, no certificates of education. He also said that Australia reducing its funding to IOM has made things harder for Indonesia. I guess that means for most people that we've spoken to in this series, it's a long haul in Indonesia with no rights. That's the reality for most refugees now, and there is really no other way around it. And when I think of all those people in shelters and all those people in the military barracks in Kalideres and someone like Mehdi, it's really difficult to think that they're just going to be there for who knows how long. There is the smallest glimmer of hope. Sponsored resettlements. Canada accepts 20,000 sponsored resettlements per year from all over the world. They're hard to get, but it's one way to get out of here. There are a few sponsorship programs, but the most common one is if you have a friend or connection in Canada, they can put together a group of five people who can privately sponsor your resettlement. They sponsor your visa application and then they vouch for you for the first year of your arrival in Canada. Three years ago, a group of Canadians heard of my advocacy work and they offered to sponsor me. I remember when you told me about that, it was so exciting. But it's felt like a slow letdown since then. Nothing's for certain. It's such a weird feeling. Like, I am happy, but I feel like I can't be properly happy because my family is still stuck. That's the catch. Yeah, it's only for me, not for my family. And that means that we will separate. I hope that, you know, I'll go first and be able to find a way or save up enough money, you know, to sponsor them. It's going to be a really complicated process trying to reunite us all together as a family if we are able to do it. And there is always a chance of rejection. I might not even make it. And what about Patrick? Well, he's an Indonesian citizen. I'm not worried about him. He should be able to come with me or follow me after But, you know, it's also another complication because there's been hurdles to jump through with his paperwork and that's delayed things. It's just very complicated. What about your dad? We've heard a bit about him through the series. How's he going now? My dad's still deeply depressed, and so is my mom. But at least my mom will listen to me. 
But for my dad, we have to take him food and he's just intent on staying home. When COVID started in February, I bought him a box of 50 surgical masks and he's only used two. Not that he doesn't believe in masks, but the only times that he went out is because I dragged him out. Where did you take him? It was one of his better mood days, so I, I asked him to come to my place to make me a recording box for recording this podcast. Oh, there's one more person in our family you forgot about. What about Bella? <laughs> Not a person. No, just kidding. <laughs> this sponsored resettlement. How long till you're going to be in Canada? Well, I'm not sure. It's a very slow process. It's already been two years in the making and there's probably another two years or so until I can get to Canada only if they accept my application. So, you know, it's definitely not over. Who knows how long it will take or whether or not I'll get approved. Moshgan, we worked on this podcast for two years and we've included some very dramatic, some very traumatic moments. We told your life as a story, but the reality is messier and slower than that. Yeah, on a day to day, it's just this boring, long wait that I don't know what to do with. Your towel is here, Pat. I don't know what to do most of the time. (laughs) So I'm just sitting there, laying there, waiting. The Wait was written and produced by Nicole Kirby and co-hosted by me, Mojgan Marafizade. Michael Green is the co-writer and supervising producer. Sound design and mixing by Beg Fari. 
The Wait was produced in conjunction with The Guardian and first aired on their Full Story News podcast, with editorial support from Miles Martignoni at The Guardian Australia. Support for this project was provided by the Walkley Public Fund and a Judith Nielsen Institute freelance grant for Asian journalism. A big thank you to everyone who shared their story for this series. And thanks also to Tessa Rex, Jem Rommel, Trish Cameron, Andre Dow, Donnie Marmer, Patrick Tumeau and Ben Doherty. Theme music by Emma Davis. Thanks for listening to this series. If you liked us, leave us a rating and review. There are also photos, videos and more information on our website, theweightpodcast.com.